Before we open up God's word this morning, would you pray with me once more? Father God, we come before you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I just ask now that as we begin to to sit and hear you speak to us, that you would steady our hearts, that you would open our ears, that you would give our minds understanding, not simply intellectually, but by faith, and that you would conform us into the image of Christ during this time. Lord, the world is pulling us in every different direction. The world desires to pull us away from you. The world wants to incline our very hearts to darkness. And so our prayer now, Lord, is that you would sovereignly, by the power of the Holy Spirit, incline our heart to your very heart. That you would open our eyes, that we would see your glory. That as brothers and sisters in Christ, as a family in the Lord Jesus Christ, we would be united here as one to both fear and love your name. That you would give us a distaste, a hatred for the things of the world. That we wouldn't seek satisfaction in the things of the world, but we would be satisfied singularly by your steadfast love. We ask that you would lead us into truth which is all the more important now in a world full of lies. I pray that the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight. And we ask, we plead, we beg, Holy Spirit, that you would do now what only you can do, and that is take the proclaimed word of God and shape our hearts into the image of the Son of God. We commit this time to you now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we are continuing with our study in the gospel according to Luke, and we're looking at the second part of Mary's song of praise. About two weeks ago, we looked at, or three weeks ago, we looked at Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 49, and this morning we'll look at Luke chapter 1, verses 50 through 56. But before you turn there, I want you to listen to the words of Psalm 96, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 96, verses 1 and 2 read, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Brothers and sisters, that is exactly what Mary is doing in her song of praise here. She is blessing the name of the Lord. And this morning we will see in the second half that she is telling of the salvation that the Lord Jesus Christ, the baby that she carries, will accomplish. Now, I want to read our, our verses and then um, clarify some things before we move forward. So if you turn and look with me at Luke chapter 1 starting at verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. 
He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her for about three months and returned to her home. As I noted, this is the second part to this sermon, Mary's Song of Praise. The first time, as we looked at verses 46 through 49, we saw Mary's personal praise. She was personally praising God for what he had done for her. But now in verses 50 through 55, it goes from what God had personally done to Mary giving a prophetic praise for what God will do through her son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But you may have noticed as we read these verses that it was in the past tense. What he has done, has scattered, has brought down, has exalted, has filled. So if this is about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is yet to be born, how is it in the past tense? Some may ask. Well, oftentimes in these prophetic words of praise, we see what is going to happen in the future spoken of in the past tense because the writer under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is so certain of what will the outcome will be that they speak of it as if it's a done deal. And Mary here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is so certain of the work that the Lord Jesus Christ, her son, will accomplish that it's spoken of in the past tense. Let me give an example for just to show you that that is uh, a pattern we see. In Romans chapter 8, one of the most glorious chapters in our entire Bible, Paul is speaking of this amazing work that God will do. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he also justified. Those he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, none of us are glorified yet, but it is spoken of with such certainty because what God purposes can never fail. And so I just wanted to clarify that as we're seeing this second half of Mary's song of praise, that it is of the Lord Jesus, and it is a certainty of what she sings. So this morning, The big idea here that we're driving toward is this. True worship praises God for what he has done and will do for us through Christ. True worship praises God for what he has done and will do for us through Christ. Now, our first point, Christ will show mercy to the fearful. We see that in verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, when we talk about God's mercy, his mercy, we're talking about God's compassion, God's pity toward those who are his, God's faithful love to those who are his. God giving what we don't deserve. And as we look back to chapter, uh, to verse 49, 
we see this interesting dynamic. Verse 49 told us, and holy is his name. Now, I want to draw a connection here that's extremely important for us to realize. God is holy, man is not. What enables you and I to stand in the presence of a holy God is the fact that he has been merciful toward us in Christ. His mercy is what enables us to stand before him in his holiness. And so he says, his mercy is for those who fear him. Notice that this is a qualified mercy. His mercy is not for everyone. His mercy is specifically for those men and women who fear him. This is something we don't talk of much in the church anymore, the fear of the Lord. But it is a starting blocks. If you don't fear God, you don't know God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. And so here we're seeing a very important, powerful connection. It says his mercy is for, is for those who fear him, which means it is the fear of God that opens the door to receive the mercy of God. The fear of God opens the door for the mercy of God. That great fountain of mercy, it is fear that opens the valve. Now, when we talk about fearing God, I, I, I want us to understand there are two ways to understand the fear of God. The first one is the one nobody wants to talk about. But it's the fear of God that is terror. We somehow think it's it's wrong to speak about having a terror, being terrified of God. We see that the sinners are terrified of God in Genesis chapter 3, verse 10. After Adam and Eve have sinned, it says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. They hid. In Psalm 105, again, fear. Psalm 105, verses 36 through 38. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the first fruits of all their strength. Then he brought out to Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread had fallen, for dread of them had fallen upon it. It's a terror. Luke chapter 2, verse 9, we'll see at some point. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, speaking of the shepherds. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Acts chapter 5, verse 11. Speaking of Ananias and Sapphira who were struck dead for their, for their lying. After they had both fallen dead, it says, of the church, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. I want us to understand first that terror type fear of God, because that's where we all must begin. If you've never had a terror of who God is, 
with all due respect, you're, you're quite foolish. You're not seeing God. This is the one who says by his very word can melt to the mountains. This isn't the, the terror type fear isn't what Mary's talking about. But it is something that we must understand so that we can understand what the fear Mary's talking about. The fear Mary's talking about is a reverential fear. It is the type of honor, awe. When you stand in the presence of somebody of, of authority, of might, and you just, there's a recognition and a humility, almost as if you're thinking, I shouldn't be here. I define that type of fear as this, having a profound respect and understanding for who God is and what he is capable of, but that he is for you and therefore you humbly and joyfully submit to his rule and reign. Think about that. You, you, you have a, a, some type of apprehension of God. You recognize that he is the great sovereign. You recognize that so powerful is he that he speaks a word and universes come into existence. So holy is he that no sinner can be in his presence. So all-knowing is he that he knows thoughts that you never speak. So just is he that he will bring every deed into account of every person who had ever been born. That's terrifying. But then you know and you recognize, wait a minute. That's who he is. That's what he's capable of. But in and through faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that is all not against me, but he is for me now. And that recognition drives you to a state of humility, honor, and awe and obedience. That is the type of fear. And this definition that I provide here is important because it acknowledges both sides of the type of fear of God but it rests in the fact that he's for you. It is those who fear the Lord rightly that are in position to receive his mercy, she says. Who are in a position to receive his love. But notice she says from generation to generation. It's not just for Mary. Mary's not saying, for us here in this time, in roughly, let's say, maybe 1, 2, 3 AD, for those of us here who fear we receive mercy, no, from generation to generation, not just for her time, but for everyone everywhere who rightly fears God, his mercy awaits. His unchanging nature, his mercy toward his people the God who's faithful to Noah, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph, to Moses, to David, to Mary, is the same God who will be faithful to pour out his mercy upon you if you rightly fear him. And let me say, you can only rightly fear God when you have faith in his son. Because it is faith in Christ that gives us the new heart and the indwelling of the spirit so that you can rightly see, love, and submit to him. This is what Mary begins singing about. That alone there, we could say, just close it up and go to prayer here. There's enough there to keep us on our faces. Mary is praising God that he is a merciful God deserving to be feared. But she goes on. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. 
So this God who gives mercy now, we are told, is a very strong God, an omnipotent God. And it says that he has displayed, he has shown his strength. When it says his arm, in the Bible, the arm of God is used symbolically to represent his power and authority. Mary is praising God for his strength. Psalm 44, verse 3, which we read this morning. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did they say, nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm in the light of your face, for you delighted in them. It is God's arm of strength, speaking of, that saves people. But here we're told that the strength, the arm of God is being displayed against a certain people. He has shown his strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud. The object of God's strength are those that are proud in heart. There we see the here we see the first of a series of contrasts in the passage. In verse 50, we sp he spoke of those who fear him. In verse 51, he's speaking about those who are proud before him. The fearful and the proud. Who are the proud? What does he mean by that? When Mary says this here, she is talking about those who do not fear God. The proud could be, in her context, those in Rome, the Roman Empire. It could be the religious leaders of her day, keeping heavy burdens upon the people. But we can't say for sure, it is those who live with no fear of God and see no need of Christ. And therefore they govern, they lead, they rule from a position of pride. The Bible is full of such examples. Exodus chapter 5, we encounter Pharaoh. Pharaoh was a very proud man. Exodus chapter 5, verse 2. But Pharaoh said, who's the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. He's just thumbing his nose at God. Prideful. No fear. In the book of Daniel, chapter 4, we encounter Nebuchadnezzar. Listen to Daniel, chapter 4, verses 29 and 30. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power? as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And then verses 34 through 37, Nebuchadnezzar realizes, my pride blinded me 
to who God is and I must fear him. In the New Testament, we see the proud in a character like Herod Agrippa in the book of Acts, chapter 12. Herod is, is ruling. Herod thinks really high of himself. Acts chapter 12, verses 20 through 23. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. And they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of God and not of man. Immediately, the, the angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. These are pictures of men, men in positions of, of, of authority, who are so full of pride through and through that they do not acknowledge God. And because they do not acknowledge God, they also put heavy burdens upon God's people. Each of those men met the strength of the arm of the living God. And it says, it goes on in verse 51, he, speaking of Christ, has scattered them. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Scattered is a very interesting word. It has, it has military implications. It means to render powerless. It's the idea of there being an opposing army and you are dividing their forces. And because their forces are divided, they have no power. They cannot accomplish anything. We saw that in the book of Exodus chapter 15, Moses sings his song and how they uh, the, the Egyptians pursued God's people. And when they went into the sea that was divided, God scatters them, brings the waves upon them, and destroys them. He scattered them. He rendered them powerless. Or Psalm 89, verse 10, the, the last half. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Brothers and sisters, I want you to be very I want to be very clear here. And I hope this is a word of, of encouragement to you and of strength. Christ will never be mocked. Christ will not be mocked. As surely as Christ is merciful and will be merciful to those who fear him, he will show his right arm and he will scatter those who are proud and, acknowledge, and do not acknowledge him. The proud, those individuals who see themselves as self-sufficient, those who see no need to acknowledge God, God will, Christ will scatter them. He is the reigning king. He is the lion of Judah. Notice Mary says that he will scatter those that are proud in the thoughts of their hearts. This is extremely important because it tells us pride originates in the heart that's where pride is birthed out of your heart, your control center of your being, where, where that governing force lies. Your thought life and not simply your actions are pride-filled. What you think is what you will become. Wicked thoughts produce wicked men. Prideful thoughts produce prideful men. And Mary now sings and praises God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because Christ will come. He will expose the prideful. He will render them powerless and he will rule and reign as king. 
Could you imagine she's singing this as Christ grows within her womb? What could this young woman of faith be feeling? We read her words, but it'd be so interesting to be able to jump maybe into her heart and know her affections at this moment. Christ will show mercy to the fearful, but he will also judge the proud. And for this, he must be praised, which is why Mary sings of it. So let me put two questions before us now. Question number one. Do you see yourself as in as being in need of God's mercy? As you sit here this morning, and as you rec- think of just who you are, not your circumstances. Let's just let's just do away with that for a moment. Just to try to divorce yourself away from the circumstances of life. As you just look in the mirror and recognize who you are, do you say, Lord, I need your mercy. I need your mercy because of who I am. The second question for us to consider this morning is, do you fear him? Do you fear the Lord Jesus Christ? So tired of the Jesus is my homeboy mentality that you see on t-shirts. This idea of when I first see Jesus, I'm just going to run up and give him a hug. He is a friend of sinners. He is our elder brother. He is our the groom of the church. He is to be loved. He is to be adored. He is to be cherished. But that does not mean he is not to be feared. He is the king. We should recognize who Jesus is, what he is capable of. We should desperately cry out and thank him for the mercy he showed us so that we can see those things. And we should fear him rightly. Do you fear the living God? And this is where it's so important to have a proper understanding of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because so often we say we fear God, we love Jesus. We fear that God of the Old Testament, man. Those books, that's a hard God. I'm scared of him. But Jesus, I'm just going to run up, just nuzzle up close and give him a hug and never let go. We have a hallmark Jesus, not a holy Jesus. So do you see yourself as in need of the mercy of Christ? And do you fear the living Christ? Mary is praising him. She is singing this prophetic song that he is to be praised for his mercy, but also for his strength against the proud. Which is also very convicting because do we praise God? Do we praise the living Christ? when we see him exercising that judgment against the proud. Our second point, Christ will exalt the humble. Verse 52, and he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Mary now tells us that those proud people that do not fear the God, do not fear God, do not fear the living Christ. They're mighty. They're rulers. They sit on thrones. But they're small thrones. They're not sitting on the throne. Because Christ will bring them down. They will be brought down. 
To be brought down, it means to remove an object from a higher position and put in a lower one. It's speaking here of re being removed from a position of power, from an office of power. We must never forget that the God who has placed you in power can remove you from power. When we looked at Nebuchadnezzar, that's a great example. It's comical to see so many of those in, in today's culture really thinking there is somebody. Really thinking that they are somehow able to alter the course of human history. God struck Herod with worms and they ate him up. God could drop every single one of these leaders that are corrupt and godless like that. One of them drops with a heart attack today. That wasn't just bad eating habits. That was the sovereign God taking somebody out. Those who God puts in power, he can remove from power. He says mighty. He says thrones. Two words here that, again, is pointing perhaps to Roman occupation, perhaps pointing to religious leaders. But it's talking, it's talking about those who are in those positions that conduct themselves in a manner that is against God, against his purposes, and against his people. Those who are denying Christ and oppressing his disciples. We don't really understand what that would be like today for us. We, we live in relative comfort. We think it's persecution when Starbucks cups don't say Merry Christmas. But there is real persecution that's happening around the world. And during that time, it was a very tough time to be a follower of Christ. It was hard to be a Jewish person faithfully trying to serve the God of Israel under Roman occupation. But then you go a step further and Christ is born and you identify with him. And now you're going to get it both from Rome and from Israel, the Jewish leaders. Parts of the, do you know in parts of the world today? Church membership requires how you respond to a grenade being lobbed in the sanctuary. Parts of Africa, part of the membership class is grenade drills. Because the rulers, the authorities, the mighty ones are so opposed to God and his people. So much do they, in their pride, see no need of Christ. Now, I want to make certain here while this is also this is in, in, in one aspect talking about kind of the socio-political climate, talking about those that are truly in positions of authority within the society, Luke's gospel, as we will see, isn't really focusing heavily on the socio-political aspects, but he's focusing really heavily on the spiritual dimension of all this. So if you were to turn to Luke chapter 6, In verse 20, Jesus speaking of Jesus, it says, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. He, Christ, has in mind this spiritual eternal kingdom. So the mighty ones, the ones on thrones are those who are against his kingdom. Oftentimes those in positions of authority in the world 
are also waging a spiritual battle against Christ and his people. But it doesn't simply mean that. Anyone who uses their power and influence to deny Christ and to oppress his people, this applies. They will be brought down. But again, the contrast. And he's exalted those of humble estate. The mighty and the humble. The humble are going to be exalted. They're going to be raised high. It means to be given a high position. Humble estate, meaning of simple means, not very distinguished. We saw how that can apply to Mary. Very humble girl of humble means. Those of humble estate are those who see themselves as undeserving before God. Those who know their need of Christ. To to be of humble estate is to confess your spiritual bankruptcy before a holy God. Let me put it this way. Confessing spiritual bankruptcy is the pathway to true spiritual prosperity. Do you see the upside down nature of the kingdom of God that Mary is praising him for? The world loves to exalt those of power, of might, of prestige. Kingdom of God, those are the people God brings down. Christ does not exalt the mighty ones, but the humble ones. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, Verses three and five, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Those who recognize they have nothing and are nothing before God are the ones that God lifts up. The ones that God shows favor to. The half brother of Jesus, James, speaks about this in his epistle. James chapter four, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Somebody who thinks they're mighty before God has a mental problem. Like, just gotta be honest. Like, how can you think that you're mighty as you stare at God? He is giving you the oxygen to breathe He's keeping you alive in your pridefulness against him. Anyone who comes face to face to the living God and remains in their their pride and and is boasting of their might and, and is abusing the thrones that God has put them on. It's not a very polished way to say it, but they need help. They need Christ. They will be brought down. They will be humbled either in this life God willing, and they will come to faith in Christ. They'll be brought down eternally and scattered in the day of judgment. Brothers and sisters, we need to guard our hearts here very much. Let me for a moment here just speak from a place of, I guess, I would say pastoral concern. We really need to guard our hearts because the political climate of our day 
has so many followers of Christ trying to bring the mighty down ones from their thrones. We have men and women saying, we got to bring them down. We have to do this. We have, they want to play the place of God. I've been guilty of that heart posture. I've heard it here in our sanctuary after services. We need to guard our hearts because it's not our job to scatter the prideful ones. It's not our job to bring the mighty ones down from their thrones. Christ will do that. Our job is to intercede and pray that they would repent or pray that God's justice would be done. But it is not our job to get into the trenches and try to do what only Christ can do. We have to be careful there because we end up becoming them. The proud, the powerful, the prosperous will not have the last word. So you don't need to fear. You don't need to get all worked up. God is sovereign. Christ is ruling and reigning. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in power. He will scatter the proud. He will bring down the mighty. He will not be mocked. He will exalt those who humble themselves before him. Therefore, I think, again, as a word of caution, we need to be more concerned with praying than protesting. It's interesting, the early church didn't take to the streets. They took to the catacombs to pray. We can talk about the political side of things some other time. But chiefly, our job is to be men and women who trust in Christ as king. He didn't call us to do his work in that way. Listen to Philippians chapter 2. Verses 9 through 11. Therefore God, speaking of God the Father, has highly exalted him, the Lord Jesus Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He will bring down the mighty from their thrones. He will exalt the humble and he will show himself to be the supreme sovereign. Mary is praising him for that. The early church didn't try to overthrow Rome because they knew Christ would have the last word. Third point. Now we see that Christ will fill the hungry. Verse 53. And he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. You know, in our day, we really don't think much about hunger. I'm talking about true hunger, right? I'm not talking about the sermon's going a little long. I really hope I can stop at McDonald's on the way home and get something to eat because I'm hungry. I'm not talking about that hunger. I'm talking about that kind of hunger where your stomach is touching your back, where you don't know where your next meal's coming from. We don't know it that way. We're not acquainted with hunger the way the people in Mary's time were and the way that some of our brothers and sisters in different parts of the world are. Back then, food wasn't accessible as it is now. Hunger was a real issue. The rich that are made reference to here, well, they were well, they were well cared for. They really didn't have lack. 
the same way to a large extent for us in this world. If you were an average person of humble means, you learn to accept hunger as a part of everyday life. Mary says here, he has filled the hungry with good things. That word fill, he has satisfied the hungry with good things. Psalm 107, verse 9. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Remember, Luke is chiefly speaking of the spiritual realities here. What Mary is saying is that Christ will accomplish this satisfying of the the hungry soul. We saw that in when I made reference a few moments ago to Luke chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Mary, in this prophetic song of praise, is saying that the Messiah will come and fill and satisfy all of those who hunger after God. Those who desperately see their need of Christ the Messiah. In the kingdom of God, it is those who are most hungry that are most healthy. Now, she's using imagery here that they would be familiar with in her prophetic song. They they understood hunger. Do you hunger for the Messiah more than you hunger for that next meal? She contrasts now that with the rich, the hungry and the rich. The rich are those who have an abundance of resources. Biblically, those who are rich are often portrayed critically because they're portrayed as not seeing their need for Christ or trusting in Christ. Luke chapter 12. Verses 13 through 21, the parable of the rich fool, the one who had all these riches and these grain houses. And he's, I'm going to store it up. I'm going to do all these things. And it ends by saying in verse 20, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. The things you had prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The rich here are those that are trusting in what they have. I want to be very clear. God's not saying that it's wrong to be rich. But the word of God is saying that it's wrong to trust in your riches more than you trust in Christ. That it is sin to be satisfied with your riches more than you are satisfied with Christ. That it is sinful to depend on your riches more than you depend on Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them to not be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Do not set your hope on your riches. Mary is contrasting those who had set their hope on their riches and not set their hope on the Messiah. 
But the hungry, having no abundance of resources, must depend on God. The rich will be sent away empty, it says. Empty there means to have gained nothing. To have gained nothing. Failed contrasted with empty. I, I, think about this. Those who have lived a life pursuing satisfaction in the riches of the world are said to have gained nothing because they will have no share in the kingdom of Christ. Jeff Bezos, as far as I know, and Elon Musk have no faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Billionaires. Billionaires. I can't even count to the number, amount of money they have. It's nothing. It's gaining nothing because they have no share in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that single mother raising two children who came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and works two jobs and doesn't know what to do. Oh, she's she will be filled. She will be satisfied. She will be rich because she will have a place in the kingdom of Christ. Mary, think of Mary here. Young Mary, teenage of teenage years, who is now carrying the Messiah. She has nothing to boast of in who she is. But she will be filled. She will be satisfied because she has Christ. But the rich, the mighty, the proud, those on thrones, they gain nothing. This is the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. Proverbs 11, verse 28, whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. This is what God will do in Christ. He will satisfy, he will fill, he will lift up those who cast themselves completely upon his mercy through his son. So let me ask this question. Do you hunger for Christ or are you passing through this life satisfied? Do you hunger for Christ or are you satisfied? Is Christ a necessity or simply a nice thing to have in your day? One day you're going to die and somebody's going to get all your stuff. If you lived for your stuff, if you lived for your riches, you gained nothing in this life. But if you saw your condition as a sinner... If you turn to God to receive the mercy and the forgiveness available in Christ, if you've humbled yourself before him, then you've gained everything for all eternity because you will be in his kingdom as his child with your life hidden in Christ. Now, I do want to recognize here, while this is speaking chiefly of, of spiritual hunger, there is also a material application. Jesus did care for the poor. He did feed people. Feeding of the 5,000. So I just want to say as a way of application, we cannot simply say, you know what, I'm just going to spiritually help people. But materially, that's on them. 
I'll pray for you. It's interesting. Oftentimes, those with the with a full stomach have an open heart. Listen to James chapter two, verses fifteen through seventeen. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, "Go in peace, be warmed, be filled," without giving them things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. A heart that is filled will seek to fill other people's hearts. Christ fills the hungry with good things. He provides spiritually, but he also does provide materially for us. We're not trying to venture off into the prosperity gospel here, but we are called to meet the needs of those. So I just want us to be generous toward others, both spiritually and materially, because as we see, God has been generous toward us in his son. Lastly, and this is a, a real quick point here. Mary closes her song with this third point, that Christ will keep his word. Point three, Christ will keep his word. Her song's coming to a close, and she wants to point back that God is the one who keeps covenant. He is, verse 54, he's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. You can imagine in Mary's time, the people had grown weary. They'd be bitter. Roman rule was not fun. And you can imagine at least a few people in town asking, where is God? Has he forgotten us? Is he even real? As Mary sings these last parts here, her words emphatically are, no, God has not forgotten. God has remembered his mercy. God is not one to forget. God always delivers on his promises. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Mary now offers praise to God for the mercy he has shown his people. The story of scripture is a story of God's continual mercy toward his people. God has been merciful time and time. God has been merciful simply not to just be done with all of humanity. Israel had given them many giving God many reasons for him to just wash his hands and be done with it. But God continually is merciful. And God made promises and delivered. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever, it says in verse 55. Here and now, as Mary sings these songs, the Savior of the world, the promised Messiah, the true seed of Abraham, the son of David who will sit on the throne forever is growing within her and he will be born and he will seek and save the lost. He will deliver and he will rule. God, the father in sending his son is fulfilling the very promises he made to Adam in Genesis three fifteen, to Noah, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David. The mercy that was promised in verse 50 that we saw this morning and his mercy is for those who fear him. Well, has always been provided, but now will be displayed and provided in fullness through the son that will be born by Mary. The child that Mary carries is the fulfillment of all the promises and the shining testimony of the mercy of God toward his people.
You and I are recipients of those promises. God, in his mercy, sent his son to seek and save the lost. That is anybody and everybody who is trusted in that son. Mary's song of praise is a beautifully rich song that shows us that true worship is God-centered from the soul and marked by humility. But the true worship is also supposed to make much of what God has done and will do through Christ. Verse 56 tells us that after three months, she went back home. She left. Seems to be right before John is born. Mary has spent three months with Elizabeth, and one can only think of the giddiness they had marveling at what God has done and is doing in their lives. John's about to be born. He'll be the forerunner to the Messiah. The very Messiah is growing in Mary. And one can just imagine what those conversations might have been like. Now Mary's going back home to face the music. Teen girl pregnant. The rumors will begin to swirl. Did she cheat on Joseph? Why is he still with her? But in these three months, Mary's song shows us that her heart is full. Her soul is given over to the will of God. And though belief is costly, she knows that Christ is worthy to be praised. So how about us? Do we seek to worship Christ with a God-centeredness? Do we worship Christ from our very soul? Do we worship Christ with humility? And is our worship making much of who Christ is and what he has done and will be doing? That's my prayer for myself and for all of us. I pray that as we look unto Jesus and worship him, we do so as ones who know that Christ will help those who fear him, exalt those who are humble before him, fill those who hunger for him, and keep his promise to all who have trusted in him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that in the fullness of time, you sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the one who fulfills the promises that you have made from long ago. We thank you for the upside down in nature of your kingdom. We thank you that you do not look on the outside as man does, but that you look upon the heart. You look upon those who fear you. You look upon those who are humble before you. You look to those who see their need of your mercy. You delight in to, to supply those who hunger after you. We thank you for being that type of God in your son, Lord Jesus. We also thank you that you, Christ, are also a God of justice we see here. That the proud will be dealt with. That the powerful will be dealt with. That the sinfully prosperous will be dealt with. And that you will shine radiantly as the king. Mary sang a song of praise of all these things. And it is my hope and my prayer that we sing likewise of, of you, Christ, and all that you are, all that you've done, and all that you are doing. <laughs> Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.